0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world-leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From Plato to Aristotle and Russell to Wittgenstein, we traditionally see philosophers as engaged in the disinterested pursuit of truth, a view philosophers themselves are inclined to encourage. But in a postmodern world shaped by Richard Broughty's claim that philosophy is merely a form of cultural politics, few now imagine that the truth, with a capital T, can be uncovered. So, must we abandon the idea of a philosophy devoid of motives and social goals? And if so, how is such a philosophy to be distinguished from literature or politics? Should we hold on to philosophy as the pursuit of the one true story of the world, with logic and rationality central to the endeavour? Or are these themselves rhetorical tools to convince the unwary? Joining us to debate truth, our renowned philosopher Sophie Allen, critically acclaimed writer Jane Teller and philosophy professor Barry Smith. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Miriam Francois.
2: Now, to help us unpick these thorny questions, we have three fantastic speakers alongside me here today. Kicking off to my far right is Yannatella. Teller. Jana Teller is a critically acclaimed writer whose work consists mainly of novels, essays and short stories, often focusing on grand scale existential topics which spark controversial debate. You may know her most well-known novel, Nothing, which was initially banned, I believe, for 10 years and has since been translated into over 30 languages. She's received many literary awards, including the Drassos Prize for Literary Works Towards Peace and Human Understanding. Welcome. Barry Smith is a philosophy professor and the director of the Institute of Philosophy at the University of London's School of Advanced Study. He also directs the Center of the Study of the Senses, a research center that aims to achieve an understanding of how our senses contribute to our perception of the world. And third, but not least, is Sophie Allen, a philosopher at Kiel with interest in philosophical methodology, metaphilosophy, and metaphysics. Her book, A Critical Introduction to Properties, was published in 2016. Now, the way this is going to work is we're going to kick off with our first question, which is, is philosophy the disinterested pursuit of truth? And if not, what is it? Our speakers will each have Three minutes to lay out their initial position on that. I'll then lead the way with a few questions and then we'll have some, some closing remarks. So, first off, who would like to kick off with the initial question? Is philosophy the disinterested pursuit of truth? And if not, what is it? Jana? Well,
3: the short answer is no. Disinterested pursuit is a contradiction in terms because you wouldn't pursue anything if you didn't have an interest. I mean, where does the goal come from? Where does the desire to pursue anything? So, but then I'll say it's just the opposite. It's the interested pursuit of truth. And being a novelist, I have the freedom to talk as a layman on this subject with these more eminent philosophers. But I believe every human being is a philosopher by nature in terms of we question the meaning of life as we go along. And some people do it in a more learned way, Everyone does it in their own way. And as a novelist, I do it through fiction. I believe we do all pursue the one truth, but we come from an angle. And that angle determines what we are looking for. The only place where, I don't even say disinterest come in, but a certain amount of objectivity can come in is, if we are really sincere in our search, we will also be open-minded enough that when we are proven wrong, we will accept it and admit it. And we will always be proven wrong. Because whatever we look for, we look for because of what we know at that stage where we start out. And we wouldn't have discovered anything if things still look that way when we think we have discovered something new. It wouldn't be new, it would be what we already knew. So I think what is very important is that you allow yourself to think you are looking for one truth, You come from an interest in space, but you look for it in a way that you will go with what you learn along the way, except to be proven wrong, but you will always get to a point where you think you hold something you have found that is true. And that's how the world looks to you right now. But then maybe around the next corner, you will find something that contradicts it. And to come back to the novel side, I just read a novel by Julian Barnes with this genius title, The One Story. And... It's a love story, which I think are the best stories. And in that, through telling the story of a young man who has a relationship to a much older woman who eventually becomes an alcoholic, and throughout the novel and the retelling of that story, he's searching for the truth about that love. And even that, he can't get to the bottom of, and I think we all know that, that even our own lives, we can't get to the truth of. We always think now we have it, and then next morning we know, no, we didn't have it. But that's also what makes life
2: interesting. Thanks very much, Jana. Barry, is philosophy the disinterested pursuit of truth?
4: I think it sometimes aims to be, but I don't I don't think it is for a lot of the reasons that Jana just said. I mean, you have to have something you're interested in and going after, but disinterested doesn't mean uninterested. So a lot of people don't, you know, pay attention to that distinction. I know. And and I know you know. <laughs> you're a novelist, you know. You know. But disinterested is Disinterested is, is, I think, applicable to the content of what you're doing, but not to the reasons why you're doing it in the first place. So I think you have to be interested. You have to be motivated. You have to be questioning, curious, intellectually driven. There are things that challenge you and haunt you and you would like explained. But exactly as Jana said, once you try to get explanations up and running and you sort of put them up for scrutiny, then you have to be disinterested because you have to say, I'm not going to accept this because I want to accept it. I'm not going to accept it because it it feels right to me. And of course, today we're very worried about the intrusion of truth into politics and into other areas of discourse where what we want to believe might have a very big influence on in where we settle. So it's a good training it, that philosophy gives you to try to say that there may be rather uncomfortable answers you come to, even though, your desire to get there is interested is actually quite highly motivating and we all have it i think that the root of philosophical interest runs very deep it depends on how you pursue it i mean in a way we all start out as philosophers so you know children are very natural philosophers because they all go on saying why and you give them an answer and they say why and you give them another answer and then there's the dialectical slap that stops you whereas as philosophers we just keep asking why we just push that further and further but the desire to get an answer mustn't lead you to prejudice the outcome. And I think when you're trying not to prejudice the outcome, to be disinterested, that's where you understand that the pursuit of truth is always a mixture of modesty and presumption. There's a modesty that we won't always get to the truth or that the thing we first think of as right on further Revelation or discussing with people will unravel a little bit and we realize it isn't right. But the presumption is that we do sometimes get it. And it's quite difficult to know when we have, and it's quite difficult to be sure that you have when there are a lot of people out there who are not at all disinterested, wanting to budge you away from it, tell you, you know, there is no fact of the matter, there are no truths, that the standards are all relativized to whoever's looking. So you have to hold your nerve a little bit and keep going for it. And there was this great thing, I think, that Bernard Williams said, and I'll probably come back to him a few times in the discussion. He said, when you hear the voice of reason, it always talks with a certain accent, at a certain historical time, with a certain prior history, but when you hear it, you unmistakably recognize it as the voice of reason. And I think the presumption is we sometimes do that, even if it's not comfortable, what we're hearing.
2: Thank you very much. Bofi.
5: Okay. Well, I think both Yana both and Barry have said some interesting things here, and I think one of the things that has changed recently in philosophy, well, maybe changed over the last, I don't know, two decades or maybe longer in philosophy is the fact that I agree that there's a sense of disinterested pursuit of truth is what we want to be doing in philosophy and it's what we're aiming for. It's a kind of normative drive of philosophy. But there's an understanding that what we, und- what we will end up with, the theory you end up with may not be the truth. So if you have a nice theory of everything, you come up with a theory that can explain lots of things that are going on around us and how they all fit together. There's an understanding, at least an appreciation of the fact that that may not be the only such theory on offer. So even though you go through these processes of um, investigating how the world works and how we can explain what's going on in the world, how we explain how science works and how evidence works and so on, and we look at these processes and we we give an account of them, The account that we give, we may end up with sort of, there may be several competing accounts that were actually are sort of, for all intents and purposes, just as good. They have flaws, they all have flaws. There may be some philosophers who still think they're looking for the one true theory of everything, but I think an increasing number of philosophers recognize that what we're going to get is we've got too many theories of everything, if anything's going on, and we need to be able to fit these together and work out when they're good ones and when they're bad ones, and which ones we should accept and which ones we shouldn't accept. And I think that's where philosophy comes in because it can ask us to, we can kind of interrogate our reasons for holding these theories. We can look deeper into some, whether whether the disinterest is really there or whether there are actually sort of influences coming from outside, which are making people opt for one account of the world rather than another. So I think that is sort of where philosophy is going at this point. I think as far as truth goes, there, are, there will still be some people who think that they, they're correct and they present their theories as being the right ones. But you have to ask what their basis is for this. What kind of evidence could you have that you're actually, you know, your theory is the right one when faced with other people's accounts of what's going on? And and by other peoples, I don't just mean sort of other individuals. You can have other people working in groups or social groups or political groups and so on. I think we have to understand how to measure the efficacy of our explanations and understand how explanations work better in order to sort of further philosophy.
2: Well, picking up on that, so my my university, SOAS, has been involved in a project called Decolonising the Curriculum. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but one of them is addressing some of the roots of knowledge that we've come to and to what extent they have been informed by a very particular and narrow history of ideas, history of understanding of the world, biases, if you like, both in method and in sources. And so on that note, I'd be very interested in kicking off our first question, which is, is there a one true story that we can pursue? And particularly, I suppose, bearing in mind the movement towards decolonizing knowledge, If there is one true story, who gets to assert it and on what basis? Because clearly the decolonizing movement is about saying the assertion of objectivity by Western-centric institutions is in itself a statement of power. So who wants to kick off? I think Sophie, you'd love to kick off on, is there one true story that we could pursue? Well, that kind of fits in with what I was just saying,
5: really, that there there probably isn't one true story. Or if there is one true story, it's sort of beyond our grasp. So we're in a situation where we want the best stories we can give. I think it's very easy saying that with a Rortian sort of frame of mind, it's very easy to move from the idea that obviously philosophy has had prejudices and has had, makes social presuppositions and makes assumptions about who holds knowledge and how they gain knowledge. I mean, there's a very Eurocentric slant on teaching philosophy in this country. I teach Indian philosophy to my first years. It's actually unusual to be doing that in an undergraduate course in the UK. But what's interesting about it is actually the commonalities between the Indian tradition and the ancient Greek tradition. So we'd be looking at the sort of Aristotle and Plato and the pre-Socratics, but then we'll be also looking at the Nyaya tradition and the early Buddhists and so on. And they've got the same arguments without these people communicating. So there's an interesting sense in which there's a commonality of the human. When humans sit down and ask questions, there's a sense, I mean, obviously we might just not know that they communicated with each other. They might've been meeting in Persia or something two and a half thousand years ago, but There's a sense in which when humans sit down and ask basic questions about themselves and the nature of the universe and their place in it and the nature of God and how to explain things, there are some similarities that seem to evolve as well as differences. And so it's very easy when talking about decolonizing the curriculum to think, well, what we end up with will be radically different to what we have. But I think we might get some very good ideas, which we can then, to some extent, hopefully, Mix, mix and match, and so on. So, ideas saying I've had African students talk about the notion of the self and self-interest, about how it's very different, and say in Zambian languages, I'll have to take their word for it because I don't speak the Zambian languages concerned. But it's the idea that the individual is not paramount. So, from an ethical point of view, that makes a big difference to how we see societies and how we see interpersonal relations and so on. That's a very interesting thing to bring in to say, you know thinking in ethics and so on. So I think there's lots of ways in which we can say, okay, we've been looking at ethical theory from maybe a Judeo-Christian standpoint, and we need to not do that.
2: I'll pick up with you, Barry, if that's all right. Firstly, do you agree with this pursuit of the one true story? And could we do with diversifying our sources of knowledge in that pursuit?
4: I think there can be many true stories. I mean, there are... I don't know why we're so hung up on the one they just have to be true and they might be compatible with each other just think of the view that we might have of science even if the whole of reality was made of one kind of stuff it doesn't follow there's only one theory of that stuff there'll be theories of biology psychology physics chemistry all having their own proprietary domain and something they can contribute now you want them to be aligned with each other but you don't necessarily believe as physicists hope that it would all collapse into physics so so I I So I don't think we should get hung up on one, but there is a dangerous line of thought, which I'm sure not you, Miriam, but certainly some of your colleagues at SOAS might be slightly inclined to. So I want to just just worry it a little bit. And that's the idea that when people say, look, claims to truth and knowledge have been made a lot in philosophy, certainly in the kind of philosophy that that we do in the Western analytic Anglo-American tradition, have been made from a very particular perspective. And therefore, you know, the attempts to claim that they're universal are misleading because they're not. Once we decolonize the curriculum, we'll realize we need a much wider perspective. But of course, the attempt to have the wider perspective and to create constraints on a, a biased way of thinking is still appealing to the idea there's a truth there, right? And there's a truth that you had to realize that the original claim to truth was rather parochial and narrow, maybe even misleading. So we're going to have a much bigger conception, which tells us rightly that we must consider very different cultures, histories, traditions, and opinions, and and then we'll have things more clearly right. So there isn't a giving up on the idea of truth or the idea of the compatible claims to truth. There's just saying you didn't have them because you'd left some things out. Now, the worry and the mistake, and I've heard a lot of people make this mistake, and it goes something like this. We are always thinking from some particular perspective, some perspectival point of view, to do with our origins, our history, our culture, and so on. And therefore, there are only perspectives. But that's wrong. Look, each one of you sees the room from a particular perspective right now that can't be occupied right now by anyone else. That's your particular vantage point on the room. But you can also imagine there are other ways of seeing the room if you're sitting here or there. Now, the fact there are all these different perspectives... They can only be different perspectives on a room because there's a room. So the idea that you say there are many different perspectives and therefore there's only perspective, that's just fallacious. And I think I worry when people come up and criticize a particular claims to truth and knowledge saying that they're misleading or, or they're, they're from a particular perspective. Let's adopt a different perspective and then say there's no comparing these. Of course there is because there's got to be something the perspective's on.
3: Jana, do you agree? Okay. Uh, I'll come from a different perspective. Yes, (laughs) I really believe there is, you can say, one true story, but also that we shall never know it, and anyone who will claim they know it, we have to consider fanatical. No matter where you go in the world, the search for meaning itself is the same. And this is where I disagree with this relativist view that, oh, it's so different if, you know, you come from Africa, and I've lived many years in Africa, and I have, you know... Met the same questions there. Sometimes the answers are different, but not the search and the process. And that book you mentioned, nothing that questions the meaning of life for me. I've spoken about it, you know, throughout the world, and I get the same questions from people, the same discussions, whether I talk to, you know, young people you're here in London or in Denmark or in a village outside of Santiago in Chile or in a Pakistani college. It's That same, whenever people open their mind to, maybe I don't have the truth, and then what the heck is there? We are all on that same search. And I think that's what is interesting, not to box us down in that, you can say, the perspective world that you are talking about. Oh, I sit here, so that's the right place. No, which kind of room is this? But the thing is also, since we are part of that larger truth, whatever it is, we will never know it. We are like characters in a novel, and the characters will just never know the whole thing. And where fiction writing differs tremendously from philosophy, though it's the same pursuit of truth, is philosophy takes both its outset and its conclusions from what applies to the many. And somehow fiction does exactly the opposite. If When you read a book and you feel somehow this is talking about a human truth, maybe one we didn't know before, it's because you identify with the individual, maybe not the individual character, but then the, you know, the individual universe of that novel that you somehow know deep in yourself this resonated truth about something in life. And of course, again, there are always another truth behind the truth behind the truth. But yeah, there is, there is some truth, you know, it's like, why does the sun and the moon move the way they do? Now we know something about that. Then we'll move to the next question, to the next question, but we'll never hold That one singular truth and say, okay, now we have the answer. And I'm sure if there was an answer, somebody would have written that one book.
4: So so it's sort of interesting in fiction because fiction tries to do something that can't be true, which I think is interesting. I mean, there's truth telling when you're reading, as you say, a very good literature that's sort of expressing something even about a single human experience that we can resonate with. But, But it also does something which we absolutely can't do, which is to have full access to the mind of another to their very sort of moods and feelings and experience moment to moment. And, you know, Thomas Mann in a short story alludes to this, a story called A Gleam. He starts it by saying, hush, hush, let us look into a human soul. And that's so clever because he's reminding you it's exactly what you can't do. So, you know, as you said, usually we're with people, we don't really know, we know a lot about them, but we don't know the whole story. A novelist tries to convince us we can know that from the third person point of view so it's a sort of it's a it's a sort of impossible truth that it's not a truth
2: it brings us nicely to the next question which is about social motives social goals and the motives behind our pursuit of truth because of course what you're talking about is the idea that actually the i mean the author has full access to the knowledge of the characters in a way that we can't know the full access of the philosopher's mind but so, can you maybe touch in your response? I yeah, I know you want to come back on right. Barry's point, but on on that as well, on the, the mo- motives and and the goals of of those who seek to assert truth claims. Right. I'll do a, a yeah a little circular <laughs> answer
3: on this. But just to go into what Barry says, the thing is, as a novelist, you are not the Almighty God. If you're any good at least, then your book will always be more clever, more intelligent, more insightful than you are as a person. Mm. Because any good art and literature is not created by your conscious thinking. You can't analyze and say, this is what these characters shall do. And that's a nice plot. And then he goes left here and then he becomes a communist or whatever. And then we have a response here. Maybe it works for certain entertainment literature, but not for real literature that shall make you feel. Because what happens in real literature for it to work is that I, you know, as an author, you have to work as if you are that character. And most of us as human beings, most of what we do, we actually don't do because we have thought it through in our head, that's the right thing, then we wouldn't get into so much trouble. Most of us are driven by our unconscious. And that's, that's also how you write good novels. So you have your characters, Yeah, you have invented, of course, certain characteristics, and so, but then they do things that you have no idea really why. and. You know, often I think I will write something, it goes somewhere else, and only afterwards, and sometimes even years after, do I understand my own book. I don't know it when I've just finished it. And what what works then it, with, when it comes to truth is, if I have really listened to my characters and said, this boy who is 14 year old and questions the meaning of life, you know, why does he think the way, do, or what would he do here if I were him? If I've done it correctly, then any reader. When he forgets himself and imagines the character, he will say, yeah, I would do that if I was that 14-year-old boy in, You know, at that moment in time. And that's why it works. That's why we can read Dostoevsky here, why in China they can read H.C. Anderson. It's not for some interest in, in Russia. It's because the human truths are true. If you were that character with those specific characteristics at that moment, you would act like that, you would feel like that. And that's like this uncovering of our souls and then where it really teaches us something, I believe we really become wiser through lived experience. And literature is the closest we can come as it, to entering the other person's mind, not the writers, but the characters, because again, we have to forget who we are. We are man or woman, our age, our culture, our life experiences. And only when we imagine the story does it become real. Because whatever you see on the page, it could just as well be a manual for your car motor or a legal text. So the truth that comes out of the literature is the reader's truth.
2: I want to explore something you just said about the idea that when you're writing, you don't feel like you are deliberately infusing your characters with particular social goals or motives. Is that possible? I mean, I would argue maybe is that not the case that that's just your subconscious working over time, and you're allowing it to flow, is it actually possible for you to be making any kind of claims, which I suppose you're saying become truth in the minds of the reader rather than being assertions of truth in the text, if I've understood you correctly? I really strongly hold to, and I may be proven wrong, but I hold to that
3: any good literature, the writer doesn't quite know what they're written things will happen that doesn't come from your head. Our heads are really limited. It's like, if you think computer terms, our conscious head is like the RAM of the computer, whereas our subconsciousness is all, it's the database. And that's what we can put into a novel. And that's why it is so much wiser than the novelist as a person. And I also believe any novelist whose novels you love always get disappointed when you meet them as a person because they just cannot be anything like, you know, a, a half as much as what's in their books. Sophie? One of the thoughts I had, I don't know whether you have this experience, Barry, do you
5: ever re- read your own papers and go, who wrote that? Who wrote that? that sounds really That's
4: incredible. Yeah. There
3: you see. Exactly, <laughs> exactly.
5: You really right. think, wow, who was that? that that's right, uh, right. Yes, so I think it's, it may be a common theme about writing, but sometimes you go beyond what you think you've put down when you actually explore the words and the implications later, it's something of a surprise. You're saying, well, I get these characters and they just do things and I can sympathize that there are just things that happen for your characters and so on. I mean, I think sometimes philosophical theories sort of run away with themselves. So you have an idea and then you follow it through and you think, oh, there's a problem there and you kind of work on it and you don't really end up agreeing with yourself by the end. You can actually end up claiming you're going to argue for one thing and then disagreeing with yourself by the end, if you're doing it and following it through. You're not devoid of motives and values and social goals because in the actual epistemic stance that you have, the kind of view you have about what kind of evidence you're going to accept and what kind of explanation is going to be a good one, whether you think science is a good form of explaining the world or whether you're prone to take religious evidence or religious experience, for instance, all of these are sort of different aspects of how people then process what they experience and also process the thoughts they have on the basis of that and the logic that they use and so on i think that is not value free i don't think there's a way of making that value free you can try and make yourself aware of the values that you're holding when you're doing this but i think it would be disingenuous of me to say well actually you can sit back and just go oh yes i'm going to cleanly look at this i'm going i might try and look at something in a very utterly, you know, kind of disinterested way. But there's still going to be some reasons that I, for instance, I'm, I'm prone to not postulate, say, supernatural explanations for things. I tend not to. I know people who do. I'm not sure we could win, e- win in a fair argument. You know, ne- neither side will win. I think we sort of hit a something of a stalemate at some point. So I think there are social assumptions built in and we need to be aware of them. We also need to be aware that we don't want to constrict philosophy because of these. I'm not sure they do constrict philosophy too much in, in in a way. The role of philosophy is to examine the reasons you're holding different theories and to look at the reasons that, you know, look look to see if your arguments work. Look to see if you've got decent explanations and to try and convince yourself, if not other people, that these, these are good ideas. And a bit like Yana was saying about building characters and things, you sort of need to build theories so that they hold together and that they fit with other things but if
2: they're if they are just a large or small extent a product of your social motives and your background they can yeah they can be totally skewed by that
5: yeah if you but then if you can if 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 not you if someone looking at it can understand that then that adds that's part of the theory so that becomes part of the so it almost like becomes a sort of presupposition the presupposition becomes an explicit assumption in the theory, sort of assuming that, you know, some pe- say you think some people are innately more intelligent than others or something like this. Hmm. If we know that that's how this theory is being presented, like put together, then you can kind of look at it as if that, well, that's an assumption in the theory. If I don't accept that assumption, then I'm not going to accept what comes after it, for instance.
2: But does that therefore also mean that any true claim put forward by a philosopher should also have some form of a disclaimer, acknowledging their subjectivities and how they may be influencing the direction and form of their ideas. I think
5: I'm gonna go for a no on that because I think people have too quite rather quick to make excuses to say, well, I haven't experienced that. Therefore I couldn't possibly even empathize or try to understand that particular viewpoint. I don't think we're essentially unable to understand in most cases we're not essentially able to uh, not able to understand other people's and that their, their viewpoint
2: so you think we can we can understand other people's subjectivity
5: i think there's a lot more overlap between people than we take then so i don't think although i've got a particular perspective and i can never say understand your perspective and try as i might i can't understand barry's perspective either there's i can't understand that as a as as a, you as a subject, but I can maybe understand you as a as a human being living in a world, which I think we in order to understand each other we have to assume we're living. I have to assume that what you believe is mainly true, and what so whatever you say I'm going to try and interpret you as being someone who holds truths most of the time.
2: Okay, well this this is a really interesting conversation that I would love to maybe pick up in a minute with Yana because I know that novelists have come under criticism, for example, for writing from the perspective of characters whose subjectivities they're accused of not necessarily being able to fully comprehend and and therefore in some ways sort of not doing justice to characters who come from very different worlds than their own. But we can maybe come back to that one. I wanted to pick up with you, Barry, on the idea of in this in this pursuit of kind of motive-free philosophy... Are there objective methodologies which can allow you to transcend your subjectivity? Is that even possible? I mean, with the critiques of methodologies that are coming through from people from different cultures and and viewpoints, is there even an objective methodology that can allow us to say, well, actually I've fully accounted for my personal biases, my background, my history. I can now make this claim because I've assessed it all.
4: I think something that's making a mess of that discussion is the sort of failure to be very careful with the terms subjectivity and objectivity. I mean, that's core business in philosophy, and you've really got to get down eventually to saying what you mean by those. There are methodologies. I mean, similarly, if you're going to work in the sciences, there are different methodologies for different kinds of experimentation you might do or different quantitative qualitative research you might do. And presumably people can explain their methodology, It'd be very odd if somebody said, well, I've come up with these results according to methodology, but I really can't explain it. Sure, uh, but
2: is, it obje- is there an objective? Well,
4: I, I, yeah. who cares? I mean, there's. can I explain my methodology to you? Does that methodology seem to get a grip on the things that it's claiming to test on the basis of using those methods? You can look and see whether it does. Now, that, again, doesn't mean it's giving us something terribly significant. We know that lots of p-hacking goes on in psychology and you'll see lots of papers giving, you know, tiny uh, significant differences. And we may say the methodology is fine, it's allowed, it's agreed, that's what people do. Do we think it's telling us something of, you know, huge universal significance? Probably not. Is it advancing a career? Probably yes. So, you know, I, I think we could, now you're asking, is there a methodology that will guarantee to get you at something objectively the case? Or are there? Yeah. Well, what is it we're calling objectivity? So, so people think objectivity and subjectivity are necessarily exclusive. So the idea is the objectivity is all out there, and the subjectivity is all in here, which is a very Cartesian view. You know, all I have access to is my own private theater of experience, and I wonder if you know it's like you as if it's if it's with you like it is with me. How can I ever know? I, I really want us to get away from that picture. It seems to me that my subjective experience now is enormously shaped by objective factors, the smells, the sounds, the sights, the heat in the room, the people around me and so on. So, so what configures my subjectivity are a whole load of objective facts. And equally, if you wanted an objective, fully finished objective description of the world, it's going to have to contain that there are creatures who have subjective experience of a particular type. Kind that keeps modulating moment to moment. You'd have to include all their perspectives. You'd have to include all their disagreements and difficulties. So, you know, until we get that sorted out, I think it's very crude to put up a plastic version of what objectivity is supposed to be with a guaranteed method like a gun you fire and it hits it like a target and then say, look, lo and behold, we find out that doesn't seem to apply here. Therefore, we're just stuck with subjectivity. I think that's a really bad and confused way of thinking.
2: To me, that just sounds like it might then end up self-referential, that the methodologies that we use justify the arguments that we're making and then make sense internally coherently. But if we're making truth claims, which are assertions that have value beyond our own experience, then surely the methodologies must also be acknowledgeable beyond our own experience and perspective.
4: Well, as I was saying before, I think they can be acknowledgeable, but rather trivial. You know, if you go in for looking for small statistical differences between a control condition and your, your target condition and you find it, everybody could agree it was done, it was done properly and correctly by the standards that are applicable in the science and still think it's not getting us anything particularly significant. I work with neuroscientists, so I'm absolutely committed to doing good neuroscientific work. But when someone tells me the Broca's area is here, which we can see, you know, when we've got people in a scanner and in an MRI scanner, you see this lighting up when they're doing language tasks of a particular kind. How much more interesting would it be to say the broker's area was there? So it's not where it is, which is objectively tractable. It's what kind of explanation are we looking for? And I think one of the questions is not about methodology or objectivity, but what kinds of explanations satisfy us? When do we feel we've got something that really is making a difference? And it's doing something for us. And that's a, that's a philosophical question, one that Wittgenstein labored with for a long time. He said, you know, sometimes you don't want lots of information to the person who has lost in love. What will help them? An explanation? No, they just have to live with it. Whereas at other times we do want an explanation, but discovering what will count as a good explanation, that's hard. There's still philosophy to do on that.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient.